Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies and a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI or just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. Now, we learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show, and the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, new AI-based voice assistants are being provided to the elderly to combat the effects of social isolation and help them live independently for longer. The U.S. Surgeon General declared social isolation to be a global epidemic that drives $6.7 billion per year in unnecessary medical expenses. Now, AI bots like Elec from Intuition Robotics, which bills itself as the sidekick for healthier, happier aging, engage users when they wake up and before they go to bed, asking how they're feeling, reminding them to take their medications, providing emotional assistance, and even playing their favorite music. This is the future of graceful aging, and it's a great way to use conversational AI to improve lives. As always, a link to the full article in today's show notes. I find it fascinating. My parents are aging, and uh, I'm going to be looking into an ELIC for them. But now on to this week's conversation. Remote first work is a reality for every organization these days. As you know, I'm fond of saying we now hire the best talent rather than the best zip code. We've talked about how the next generation is defining careers around passions rather than jobs. They stitch together projects that span companies and geographies. Leaders need to consider what's required to attract and retain talent when loyalty is really to a set of values and a work culture rather than to a comp plan or certainly rather than to a logo on a business card. Organizations like Pivotal, which we learned about from great past guest Matt K. Parker, and also GitHub are way ahead of the rest. Well, today we get an opportunity to learn from a remote work pioneer who has the appropriate title head of remote at GitLab. GitLab went public about a year ago and has about a $7 billion market cap. It's one of the leading DevOps platforms and has grown its team to more than 2,000 global employees. Darren Murph has been with the company for three and a half years and has been a part of its rise to prominence. Darren's leadership helped shape GitLab's remote-first work culture. Before GitLab, Darren has been an entrepreneur, a journalist, an author. Oh, and by the way, Darren holds one of the most awesome records in the Guinness Book of World's Records. There's a cruel tease. Stick around. Uh, this is going to be a fun one. Without further ado, Darren, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by uh, maybe having you share a little bit more about your uh, your background and how you got into this space. Thank you for having me, Dan. Thanks all for tuning in. My background is a bit interesting, as you might expect, for someone who has been pushing the remote work boulder up a mountain for the better part of 15 or 20 years. 
And then COVID comes along and now that same boulder is barreling down the forest on the other side. Now we're just trying to contain it uh, and, and get people to wrap their minds around what's happening. I've spent the bulk of my career building and scaling distributed teams. This was long before remote work was cool or acceptable or even understandable by many organizations. A lot of people think about their career as what do I want to do with my life? And then they allow an HR department to tell them where they're going to live and where their family will be built. And this always seemed absurd to me. It never really meshed with my own personal values. And so instead, I optimized for the lifestyle I wanted to live. I wanted to travel. I wanted to explore cultures. And I wanted to build a great career. And so that narrowed my pool of people who I could work with, with people who were more progressive about the organizational design and how they would enable and empower remote teams. And so that building and scaling has involved editorial organizations like Engadget, and we can touch on that Guinness World Record, all the way up to GitLab today, an all remote organization. And when we went public in 2021, we became the first all remote company to do that. And that's a big deal in the world of distributed work. And even after all of that, I feel like we're just at the earliest stages of what will become the future of work. Managers who are uh, stuck in the past often think that remote work is an impediment to productivity. And here, GitLab, a $7 billion plus market cap company with over 2,000 employees and a remote first work culture, has managed to be quite successful letting employees work from the location of their choice and affording them some other benefits. What would you say to managers who say just, you know, it's a novelty, it's a fad, we had to do it because of the pandemic, but there's no substitute for face-to-face work? It all comes down to what you optimize for. So for context, GitLab was officeless from inception. And there's a key difference in treating remote work as a perk or a policy instead of an organizational principle. When you build your entire organization around the belief that we aren't going to have physical offices, instead, we're going to have as many offices as there are people, you go about things very differently. You build your culture, your values, your operating principles, your expected behaviors in a unique way that can be durable across time zones and across oceans. For organizations that were built with co-located principles in mind, being forced into the world of remote is jarring. And while many organizations made it work for a few years, you're seeing a lot of them snap back to their old ways because they're grappling with the reality that to truly embrace the future of work, where more and more people will be distributed, it requires a complete re-architecting of your operational underpinnings. That is a massive, massive undertaking. And a lot of organizations, I believe, aren't quite ready to swallow that pill. You have this title, Head of Remote, which it turns out is not just a title that you made up, it's actually becoming a popular title at organizations. Talking to a lot of people who are scratching their heads, wondering what a head of remote does all day. What do you do all day, Darren? Well, I'll frame it like this. When an organization wants to be intentional about something, they want to be great at something, you put someone in charge of it. 
If you want to drive great revenue, you hire a chief revenue officer. If you want to make sure that diversity is more than just something you talk about, but something you actually implement, you hire someone to lead diversity efforts in your organization. Remote work is another example of that. Pre-pandemic, there weren't enough remote organizations to justify having someone owning the operational underpinnings. But post-pandemic, knowledge workers have realized that there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. Even for organizations that will call themselves hybrid, they are now firmly sitting on the remote spectrum. And I really believe that there's no such thing as hybrid. Your organization is either office first or remote first. You have to build for maximum durability so that your office, so that your business, I should say, can operate even if no one is in the office or even if everyone is in the office. And if you want to do that right, you should put someone in charge of it. GitLab being an all remote organization, there are a lot of unique elements of working here. So my role is very dynamic. It's very cross-functional. I report into the CEO's chief of staff team, and it gives me latitude to reach across functions and touch the common thread across all departments, which is remote work. Even though our legal and comms and marketing and engineering teams speak slightly different languages and they use different tools to do their day-to-day work, when you're a fully global organization, that operational tissue has to be very strong to make sure that we can collaborate and be effective. So if I'm a kid out of college or a junior employee, in the past, the way I've become acculturated or become part of an organization is through osmosis, through hallway conversations, just kind of serendipity. I show up in a meeting, I show up early, I do things that help me understand the the pulse, the, the heartbeat of the organization that often are accelerated or catalyzed by these in-person interactions? How do you replace that in a remote-first culture? The secret to a great remote team is making the implicit explicit. And this is part of that audit process when companies are transitioning into remote. You have to be really careful to look at every element of your organization and ask, is this only learned via osmosis? Is this only transferred by being in the right place at the right time? Is this only transferred by being in the right click or being in the right boardroom or being in the right floor or sacrificing the right family moment to be in the right meeting at the right time? You see where I'm going with this. When you write things down, you can scale knowledge much more effectively and frankly, much more inclusively. Documentation is a superpower in the remote first world. And this is a new concept for many organizations who are used to verbalizing over documenting. So that's a key difference in the future. We will see much more rigor around documentation and less around ad hoc or spontaneity, non-documented verbalization, which doesn't really scale across an organization and across time zones. All of that being said, the best remote organizations have ironclad in-person strategies. And this seems like a bit of a paradox. You would think that the remote organizations wouldn't care so much about in-person engagements, but in fact, it's quite the opposite. Remote organizations realize that in-person moments don't happen unless you plan them. And so not only do you have to plan them, but you need to be very intentional 
about what happens when you get people together. Look, remote companies are made up of humans. Humans are communal beings. We love being around each other. We love community. We yearn for this. But what we've realized is that you don't need to commute in and out of the same office every single day to attach to that community. But you do need some element of your organization to set up some way for people to get together, whether that's an onboarding cohort where you bring all of your new hires in a quarter together to meet in the same place, whether that's a regular stipend or budget so that your teams can get together annually or biannually, depending on size and stage of the company, whether that's an allowance so that people can go to conferences and events around topics that matter to them and bond with people that maybe they don't work with, but work in the same industry. We can get really creative in making sure that people have those same touch bases. But the point is you have to put strategy around it because you can't just force people into an office and hope that serendipity does its thing. Describe the in-person uh, strategy at GitLab. How, how often do you meet as a group? Is it regional? What do you do when you get together? How do you, like you said, blend the best of remote with being very intentional about what you need to achieve when you do have the opportunities to meet face-to-face? It's evolved over time. So pre-pandemic, as the company was growing and scaling, we got the entire company together roughly every nine to 12 months for a company-wide summit. Now, the pandemic stopped that. And on the other side of it, we've, we've experimented with a few alternatives. One was recently called a get-together grant, where we granted people funds to put together ad hoc gatherings around the world. We put together some loose guidelines, but mostly we left it up to individuals to plan. And we saw a beautiful arrangement of people who were really talented in terms of offsite planning. They really wanted to rally around this idea and bring people together. And we saw a pretty amazing cross-pollination of ideas and cultures as people gathered together. What that looks like in the future, TBD. We're still iterating on it. But I would also say, look at Doist, D-O-I-S-T. Their head of remote, Chase Warrington, is an absolute genius in terms of scheduling offsites. And he has published a lot of his work on what ratios of work versus breaking bread and building rapport should be spent when you invest in an offsite? Lots of great information. So if you're struggling with this, definitely check out Chase's work. We'll go ahead and link to that in the show notes. So we've had a lot of guests over the years talk about tools that make remote first cultures work, so to speak. Everything from digital note takers. Uh, we recently had Fathom, Rich White from Fathom on. We've had Chris Ramaneni from Fireflies on. Uh, tools that facilitate um, ad hoc mentoring via Slack. Uh, there's a whole tech stack that's been built up, certainly hop in and event, uh, event management platforms for remote first events. W- would love to know, in the course of your day, what does Darren's remote first tech stack look like? We keep it pretty minimal at GitLab. We leverage GitLab, the platform. We use Google Suite. We use Zoom and and we use Slack. Now, if you look at individual departments, design, for example, they'll use Adobe's suite. 
But we try to keep the tool stack as minimal as possible because what you'll find is that the more tools that you use, the easier it is for communications to get fractured and siloed. I think the key thing to point out here is that GitLab, the product, acts as our central hallway where all collaboration, project management, and workflows can flow through. And so for organizations that don't naturally make a product that they can dog food in this way, you could look to something like a Monday.com or a ClickUp or a Dropbox paper. I think there's a lot of value in having a single source of truth or a virtual central hallway where all information flows through. I would say that's the the key to adding cohesiveness. That and of course the GitLab handbook, that's essentially our company operating manual, which is famously public and available to anyone who wants to Google it. That really helps us keep the guardrails around how work happens, where work communication happens, how informal communication happens. It's been awesome to see that evolve over time. But for a lot of companies, this is another thing that used to be implicit and now needs to be much more explicit. On your website, you've published a list of kind of your, uh, I don't know, we'll, we'll call it the Darren Murph operating manual, how to, how to work with Darren, which I think it's partly who you are and what you do is is a function of who you are as as a, as a human. But also that seems like a pretty effective technique for helping people who have never met their colleagues get to know how they can most effectively work with them. Talk about that as a something you've intentionally done and maybe help us get to know you a little bit better. I, I really, I feel like I got to know you very well reading it, but uh, maybe give, give us some of the highlights. Thank you for that. So in GitLab parlance, this is called a readme, which granted is a very technical term, but in more lay terms, it is a personal operating manual for Darren the human. Now, I'll back up and give you some context. That Guinness World Record that you mentioned, I'm the world's most prolific professional blogger. So while I was at Engadget, I published over 17,000 articles in a four-year span. That's over 6 million words. And so the math on that is an article published every two hours, 24-7, 365, for four consecutive years. That's a lot of writing. And so I earned my writing chops before I got to GitLab. So this made the creation of this personal operating manual much more easy for me than it might be for others. That being said, I think these personal operating manuals will become much more popular in the future of work because they're a way to create a shortcut to getting to know someone, something that would take six or nine months of osmosis. You're able to glean in maybe 10 minutes of reading. Now, my model for this was Sid, the CEO of GitLab. I thought it was fascinating when I was interviewing with the company that he had a personal operating manual, including flaws, things that people had given him feedback on and had pointed out over the years. He was vulnerable enough to share that so that if you're operating with him, you'll know what he already knows and what he's working on. I thought this was a fascinating way to add and accelerate the relationship if you can understand the idiosyncrasies of others that you're working with. Now, of course, you need to be a decent storyteller and you need to be okay with being vulnerable. Culturally, this is not something that's as acceptable all over the world, but it works for me. And it's something that I've received a lot of great feedback on, um, that it has helped people get to know me a bit ahead of time, kind of break the ice in advance. And I think that's really important. It helps efficiencies uh, in teams. It helps build rapport. 
And for introverts, it gives them a way to share themselves with other people without going through the process of, hey, verbalize who you are, which we do on this podcast, but it's not super comfortable for everyone. I was clued into this term called identity stack by a dear friend of mine, Tyler Selhorn. Now, I had referred to this as a purpose portfolio, but I love the term identity stack. At its core, what it means is that I believe each individual has a purpose portfolio or an identity stack. This is a layer of things that make them who they are. And of course, this changes over seasons of life. And what's interesting about remote work is it has given us all permission to really question, is my identity stack ordered in the right way? Is there anything in that stack of things that is either out of order or has too much prominence or maybe not? enough prominence. So if you ask me what's my identity stack, I would say I'm a spouse, I'm an adoptive dad, I'm a son, I'm a friend, I'm a man of faith, I'm a community member, I'm a guitar player, a bass player, I'm a traveler, I'm a hiker, and I'm also an operator at GitLab, roughly in that order. And for a lot of people, it's very refreshing to ask themselves, what is the stack? And what I think the future of work really is, is how people live. I think when historians write chapters on this era, 20 or 50 or 100 years from now, they'll start by describing the shift in how people lived. And then they'll go on to talk about how it was enabled by the shift in how people worked. And what's interesting about that is right now, the global narrative is solely focused on where and how people are working. But I think the more interesting conversation is watching how people change how they design their lives how they start integrating non-linear workdays, even the little ebbs and flows, the small things throughout their day. We were able to adopt our son much more easily because we weren't bound by the rigidity of a nine to five. So I look at this, something that matters a lot to me, and I think, wow, what kind of impact could humanity have on the orphan crisis just by giving people more freedom and flexibility over the time that they spend at work? That is amazing. And I'm sure there are a lot of other things that could be impacted by this as well. So hopefully that gives you a bit of insight into to who I am and who I aspire to be and who I am still becoming and how remote work has really shaped that. So Darren, help me puzzle through this one. So of the, I think it was eight things in your identity stack, which is fascinating, by the way, I'd say you could debate this, but only one of them really can be performed fully remote. And that's being an operator at GitLab. And a lot of times we talk about how we can actually, it's ironic, but we can use technology to humanize the work process. We can use technology to give you back some time to be the best version of yourself at work. Get all of the friction out of the way and help you build authentic bonds and help you be the other seven-eighths of yourself that you are when you're not an operator at GitLab. So... question is, if you buy that kind of thesis that we're, our whole self consists of a big percentage of stuff that doesn't happen at work and a little percentage of stuff that happens at work, if our work selves are constrained to a box on a Zoom call or a message in Slack, uh, how do we how do we have those authentic, genuine experiences that involve bringing our whole selves to work? when we don't bring our whole selves to work? 
we could spend an entire podcast on this, but I'll give you one tangible example that anyone listening could implement at their organization tomorrow. So early in the pandemic, a lot of organizations rushed to put these things on calendars called Zoom happy hours. They were meant to replace the in-person happy hours, and they were meant to build culture, build rapport in a virtual world. And they stopped working pretty early on. People got, got tired of them, and they kind of lost their luster. But I had this idea of replacing the Zoom happy hour with something I call a community impact outing. It's the same hour spent across the organization, the same sunk cost, if you will. So instead of cramming together on a Zoom box and talking about the weather, you actually deploy people into their individual communities for that same hour. And the instructions are simple. Go do something that fulfills you. Some people will spend that hour volunteering at a local food bank. Some may go read at their children's school or at a local library. And the one thing you ask is, hey, wear company swag and take a selfie of yourself while you're doing that thing. And then come back to work, whether that's in a Slack channel, a Teams channel, an all hands, and share that photo. Open up about that story. And what you'll find is that if you empower people to do this, they will find their communities within work and rally around the things that matter to them. For example, if I were to spend my time at an adoption agency or an orphanage and someone else on the team shared in that passion, we would immediately form a bond that would be very difficult to find in a co-located space. What type of atmosphere would empower us to just discover that about one another? So this is just one small, practical, tangible way that you can leverage the power of remote work to do things that would be practically impossible in an office and build more genuine and authentic bonds as colleagues. How did the organization respond to that idea? That's very novel. I've never heard of anything like that. Well, it's, it's a very GitLab thing. We celebrate boring solutions. And so this felt like a very boring way to, to solve the, the Zoom happy hour. And look, it's well received at an organization that is all remote. People opt into this lifestyle. They self-select into this tribe because a lot of them have a shared expectation that they prioritize their life and their lifestyle and they fit work into it. One of our operating principles is family and friends first and work second. And this is a great example of that. But even when I've shared this with other organizations that are not remote first, the feedback has been universally positive. I think for two reasons. One is it's just simple to do. It's kind of a simple epiphany. And the second is, wow, it's really refreshing to think about work empowering me to do something that fulfills me with the trust that I will channel that energy back into the workplace into doing great work. And it's a bit odd to me that this is an epiphany, but I'll take it. If more people start understanding the linkage between empowering people and that funneling back in as productivity, we'll take it. So Darren, we're back here in a decade and we're reminiscing about this conversation and we're talking about how the present of work in a decade was the future of work a decade ago. What's one thing that's just commonplace at work in a decade that today would seem like science fiction? Asynchronous work. I think the current frontier of remote work is geographic independence. 
COVID showed much of the world that we could decouple the results that we drive from a physical piece of geography. And that's an amazing accomplishment for us as a society. But the next frontier of remote work is far more impactful, and that is time independence. This is decoupling the business results from linear space and time. Now, this requires organizations to up in their operational processes, install new tools, install new workflows, install new learning and development and upskilling, such that we get great at moving work forward independent of having two or more people online at the exact same time. As the world becomes more distributed and as work spreads out, this will become an essential function of a highly performative remote environment. And I think in 10 years, this will just be second nature. All of us now are totally comfortable having long, rambling, years-long text conversations where before we might say we needed that synchronous phone call. I think the same thing is going to happen with work. It feels a bit forced and odd now to move massive projects forward asynchronously. But in 10 years, I think many people will feel much more comfortable moving work forward this way, especially when they start leveraging the redesigning of their lives that is enabled by doing work differently. You mentioned you're an adoptive father. What's your advice to your kid who's going to be introduced into that world of asynchronous world first? That will be the only world of work that your kid knows. What, what would you encourage them to learn what skills should they cultivate that might not have been part of the traditional learning system. My main advice is going to be don't let preconceived notions shape the ceiling that you tackle life with. It dawned on me a few weeks ago that there was a point in my life where if my mother asked me what I did for a living, I could answer, I write words on the internet. Now, when she was born, that sentence would have made absolutely no sense at all. So what sentence like that is my son going to utter to me in a few years that I will have no, no idea how to respond to? And so the point is, I've seen technology move so fast that it has literally created the impossible. And so my advice to him is going to be, listen to what I've learned, take my experience to heart, but don't let it be a ceiling for you. Don't let it be a cap. Because the truth is, even for us that live on the bleeding edge and we're trying to peek around and see the future, we're still going to be blown away. And that gives me a lot of hope. Dan, we're about out of time, but I'm not letting you off the hot seat without answering one last question for me. So we learned about uh, your Guinness world record. Quite impressive, I might add. So at what point in your career as a blogger at Engadget did you say, you know what, I'm a prolific blogger and just talk us through the, uh, I don't know, the, the Guinness Book of World Records is just shrouded in all kinds of mystery. Unpack it for us. What, uh, how'd you discover that it was something that uh, should be evaluated and what's the process of getting ultimately uh, memorialized in that, uh, that hallowed book? There was a 24-hour span in a January many years ago where I composed and published 58 articles. And this was during the Consumer Electronics Show. Anyone in the tech space will be familiar with CES annually in January in Las Vegas. 
And it was at that moment that one of my fellow editors came up to me and said, Darren, I have no doubt you have written more on the internet than anyone else in the world. And I just kind of blew him off. Like, hey, I got, I got words to write. Get out of here. But he came back and he kept pestering me. And he said, look, this is going to go one of two ways. I'm going to stand here with you and we're going to apply for this record, or I'm going to forge your name and apply for it for you. And I said, all right, we'll do this thing. So we go through the process of applying online and a few weeks go by and I get an email from Guinness and they say, hey, this record that you've applied for, it seems really interesting. We're going to pursue it. What that means is they put a team of six people on the case and they try to disprove my claim. So during this six-month process, I had to provide all sorts of back-end reports to make sure that these words were actually me, they weren't artificially generated, that I was actually compensated compensated for them. Um, it, was a, it was an ordeal. And after six months, a plaque showed up in the mail from the office in London, I, I believe it was, and it was a Guinness World Record. And so the mystery that I've unshrouded here is that they don't just give these things out. They are hard-earned and hard-won. They put actual teams on the case to make sure that when records are submitted, they are vetted thoroughly. And to this day, the record still stands. And I think it will stand for a very long time because the prolific side of this means that the time element is of the utmost importance. And so I'm proud of the record. It has stood for over 10 years. And you know what? If any of your listeners ever go out and beat it, kudos to them. I'll still be able to say that I invented the record and uh, I can hang my hat on that. Darren, I got to challenge you on that. It must be the case that uh, you've got a worthy competitor in chat GPT. How do you feel about the fact that chat GPT will most definitely become the most prolific blogger in the world? Kudos to that. I think they will differentiate between the, the human and the human or artificially generated. So we'll have to see. I think there's a record in the making. Maybe the Guinness team is listening to this and they can parse it. We'll park that on the list of topics for our next conversation. What do you say? Sounds great, Dan. Hey, Darren, this has been such a pleasure. In, uh, in over 170 episodes that we've published, we've never learned what's required to get into the Guinness Book of World's Records. So thank you. You've done a service to our whole community. It's a pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. You bet. Darren, where, where can our audience learn more about uh, you and your work? You can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Darren Murph. That's like Murphy with no Y. Or you can find me on Twitter at Darren Murph. Hey, Darren, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for hanging out and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation soon. You bet. Thank you, Dan. Godspeed. Be well. Gosh, that's a wrap for uh, this week on AI and the future of work. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin. And of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest.